This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Finding Your Bliss with host Judy Liebrach. Heard every Saturday at 1 p.m. on Zoomer Radio. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Finding Your Bliss, the show that helps you find and follow your bliss. I'm Judy Liebrach, and today we have a special edition of Finding Your Bliss devoted to a very exciting new documentary about much music called 299 Queen Street West, produced, directed, and edited by visionary documentary filmmaker Sean Menard, who you'll meet very soon. With unprecedented access to the Much Music archives, the film 299 Queen Street West, the film tells the story of a scrappy television upstart from the perspective of the VJs. At the time, these VJs, or video jockeys, had no prior TV hosting experience. They were given no scripts and no direction and went live to air all across the country. So if you're listening and you're feeling nostalgic for the 80s and the 90s, which was really the height of Much Music, you'll remember that Much was the nation's music station, a specialty TV channel largely devoted to music videos established in 1984 by John Martin and Moses Neimer of City TV. And of course, Much Music was located in the historic Queen Street building at 299 Queen Street West. And like MTV in the U.S., Much Music transformed the top 40 radio format to TV with on-camera VJs becoming instant celebrities. We have one of them here today. Filmmaker Menard chose Much Music's former VJs as his main storytellers in the film. And in fact, as just mentioned, one of the main stars is here today, Erica M., And the film treats us to a swath of familiar faces from Canadian media like George Strombopoulos, also known as Strombo, Nam Kiwanuka, Rick Campanelli, Rick the Tenth, Michael Williams, Suklin Yi, Steve Anthony, and Monica Diol, just to name a few. The VJs serve the function of the former DJs of yesteryear. And so in addition to playing pop videos, the station also devoted its programming to country music, heavy metal, R&B, rap, grunge, punk, indie rock, and alt rock. You never knew what was going to happen when you turned on much music. There were studio performances, concerts, live interviews, and the latest in music and arts news. The channel's rise in popularity intersected with rap music entering the mainstream, and as just mentioned, the birth of grunge and alternative rock. And the pop stars just showed up at the station at 299 Queen Street, causing teenage hysteria at the iconic street level studio. Before we meet the brilliant filmmaker, Sean Menard, and one of our favorite guests on Finding Your Bliss, because it's her third time here or fourth, maybe, Erica M., I would love to play a clip from the trailer for all of you now. Here's a glimpse, sneak peek from the film, 299 Queen Street West. There weren't any studios You did the shows inside of the workspace. I realized at the beginning there was nothing that we wouldn't do or play. There was no script. There was no direction. There was nothing like this in the world. The very first time I walked into the building, it hit me like, I need to be here. 
I was this kid who was this huge fan. Now I'm here. Now I'm a part of it. It's just talking about it right now gives me goosebumps. It was live TV, and as soon as that shot was over, it was halfway to Mars. Could never be so far removed from the audience because they were right there looking at you. I don't know about you, but I can't wait for the premiere of this film on September 22nd in Toronto at Roy Thompson Hall. And we'll tell you later on in the show how you can get tickets to the national tour that's taking place all across Canada. But before we meet filmmaker Sean Menard, let me tell you a little bit more about him. Sean is a Canadian director and producer based out of Toronto, and he specializes in pop culture documentaries. His previous film, The Carter Effect, premiered at TIFF in 2017 and aired worldwide on Netflix and has been met with critical acclaim. 299 Queen Street West is his third feature doc and made its world premiere at South by Southwest, a very prestigious film festival in the U.S. This highly anticipated film will also be launching on Crave, following the culmination of its Canada-wide screening tour. And of course, Eric M. needs no introduction, but I'll give you one anyway. Eric is an entrepreneur, media personality, and force for positive change. Originally a much music television host, Erica has harnessed her years in the spotlight to become a powerful keynote speaker known for conducting extraordinary interviews, like the one with Kurt Cobain, which we'll get to. She is an in-demand event host and facilitator, and co-founder of M2 Speaking, offering presentation skills training. She's also considered a pioneer in content marketing, social media, and community building. Under her leadership, over 15 years as founder of the digital agency M & Company and the wise Digital Marketing and Leadership Awards, including a Governor General's Innovation nomination. She's a storyteller at heart. She's a journalist, author, playwright, award-winning songwriter, and podcaster, and her remarkable ability to reinvent, watch her podcast, influence, create, and lead with relentless positivity lights Erica up. Sean Menard and Erica M., longest intro ever on radio. Welcome to Finding Your Bliss. Thank you, Judy. Thanks for having us. So great to have you guys here. Sean, first of all, congratulations on this very exciting film, 299 Queen Street West, which actually made its U.S. premiere at the very celebrated festival South by Southwest in Austin, Texas. And now it's making its Toronto and Canadian premiere in a gala red carpet event at Roy Thompson Hall on Friday, September 22nd. You were raised in Hamilton, you moved to Toronto, and you grew up watching the channel Much Music religiously. You even experienced much music through your two older sisters. So even before you were a teenager in your element, what was it about much music that resonated so deeply for you where you knew you had to make this film? And can you tell us more about your brainchild that spotlights much music, your newest documentary, 299 Queen Street West? Yeah, I mean, great research, by the way, Judy, on, on that backstory where I grew up. All true, all facts. I think for me, really, it got to a point where I just felt there wasn't enough being done to give the credit where it was it was really due on much music in terms of where the Canadian music industry is now. And I think that's kind of the genesis of where it started was, you know, traveling around, being in other countries, primarily the US, 
and hearing all these Canadian artists on the radio and thinking back to, well, how did we get here? How are we a country with such a little population dominating the charts? And really you trace it all back. And that's what the film's, you know, one of the big stories is that it all started at 299 Queen Street West. So really it was just about trying to find a way to celebrate that history and hang on to it and capture it and preserve it for future generations and the ones that that experienced it. I know as a filmmaker, you love to tell stories that haven't been told, much like your award-winning film, The Carter Effect, about Vince Carter that we made six years ago. It's all about you wanting to get that story out there. But this time, you were so compelled to tell this story that you mortgaged your house rather than wait for investors to make it happen. And in fact, your film, The Carter Effect, initially existed as a one-page Word doc outlining very roughly the film. So I'm wondering, what was the first page document, email, scrap of paper or napkin from a bar that you first used to scribble down the idea of 299 Queen Street West? Yeah, I'm not sure. It it probably was another Word document, to be honest (laughs) with you, but one that got passed over by every Canadian broadcaster many years ago, primarily the rights holder at the time, which was Bell Media. I think there is a misnomer in this country that everyone knows that story, or maybe people don't care. It wasn't big enough, important enough. And as time kind of, you know, (laughs) marched on and then you're in COVID and you're left with that, uh, if not now, when, if not me, who type of experience. (laughs) So uh, yeah, you mentioned it's actually a a second mortgage on the house, (laughs) putting it up to put up the financing and I do it again in a heartbeat to be able to spread the, this message and be able to get all this kind of attention on these VJs that were so impactful for so many in their youth. It's not enough to be a talented documentary maker, editor, director, producer as you are. You also have to know how to sell. And you had to sell this initially. And I love the story, Enter Erica M. What made you, Erica, after many times being approached by many filmmakers, pitching movies about the history of much, you would always say, thanks, but no thanks. What made you agree to not only be part of Sean Menard's new doc, 299 Queen Street West, which tells the story of the glory days of the station that you were such a big part of, but also to be its contributing producer, interviewee, and even enthusiastic salesperson of the film? What changed for you upon meeting Sean? Well, I met Sean, and that's what changed my mind. Sean is a spectacular person. He's very thoughtful. And I don't mean thoughtful in a nice way. I mean, he really thinks. He's a deep thinker. And when he asked me to be in the documentary, I wasn't the most welcoming at the beginning of the conversation. And I really asked him a lot of tough questions, I think, and just wanted to get a sense of who is this guy. The more he spoke, the more I realized, oh, this guy is different. This guy is special. And at the end of the conversation, I said to him, you know what? Not only will I be in your movie, but I would like to help you in any way that I can. And he took me up on that and he said, you could be the consulting producer. And I was very happy because look, my reputation's on the line as well. So if someone who is not great wants to make a much music documentary, it wouldn't reflect well on me. And I mean, I only had spoken to him for about an, I think an hour and a half or so, right, Richon? But I just knew in my gut that this guy is, he's different and that he's a storyteller with a strong point of view. Mm -hmm. Was it also the passion? Would you say that the fact that he seems so passionate or I'm asking this as if you're not here, Sean, I'm sorry, but do you think the passion had something to do with your getting excited by the whole 
process. Yeah, I don't know if he was super passionate because he's also feeling it out. Mm-hmm. I don't know, and this is, it would be a question for Sean. I don't know if Sean had already committed a thousand percent to doing it or if he was still in the stage of, let me see if I can pull this thing off. Mm-hmm. And so he was, I was one of the first people he called, I think sort of to kick the tires or to kick the old VJs and see how they, we would be responding. And what he did is he kind of used me to reach out to all the other on-air people and say, I met this guy. He's the real deal. I'm going to work with him. And I think you should too. Let me do an introduction. So I think that's, I think that's how you best use me, right, Sean? Is that accurate? Yeah. And it was really discovering the podcast that you had done during the pandemic mm. where you were interviewing a lot of these former VJs and talking about what they were up to and what they've been doing since. And in doing so, I got to reappreciate your interview skills and the thing that, you know, that got you so, so such a claim through the years, being able to pull those stories. And then hearing that, I just started picturing, wow, this would be an incredible film. How did you choose which VJs would be mentioned? I mentioned some of the ones that are in the film. How did you make those decisions? Because there were many, and I guess you had to choose we need these, whatever, 12 or 15 people or whatever it is. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the hardest things. I've been on projects where we've interviewed people and then I have to send out that email letting them know, hey, when you show up to the premiere, just a heads up, you didn't make the cut. And it's devastating, you know, to have that happen. So I was very thoughtful. I almost did it in each decade. I kind of decided to interview two or three. Mm-hmm. And then as we're moving through, I mean, you're covering early 80s all the way to the early 2000s. Yes. But I can say out of the 10 VJs I interviewed, all of them are in the film prominently. And so I was able to kind of accomplish that thing of everyone I spoke to is in there. Wow. That was nice. But what's Uh, interesting, Sean, is that even though you didn't interview more than 10 people, many more of the on-air people are featured in the film. They just weren't interviewed today. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, through the archives, because it's such a heavy archive-driven film, Erica's right. I mean, you see so many others that that didn't necessarily sit down for the interview, but you watch their presence and get to know a little bit about them through the uh, through the film. What was the process of the interview? Like, I know Erica started off with a phone call, and then it was a visit in person at a bar or or restaurant. What was the process with everyone else to sit down with them? What did that look like? You mean in the courting phase, trying to get them on board, courting, and then the actual interview? Like, how did that all unfold? I'm just curious because you're like like a phenomenal journalist too. Like you're asking these unbelievable questions and I'm just curious about your process. Yeah, I mean, I try to have a conversation first and foremost. I go in very loosely researched because the narrative in my films are all from the subjects sitting down on camera. So, you know, I might have an idea of where the story is going to go, but I don't want to lead it too far Mm -hmm. in a direction. And then I just try to stay curious, listening, finding ways I'm almost editing as the subject is speaking to me and Mm -hmm. finding ways of, oh, that's an interesting path. Let's explore that and where that's going to go. And then it's just about, you know, putting it all together and finding the gold in the archives to make it really sing. It's also so cool. I read that initially you didn't have access to the archives. And so you dug deep into YouTube and got people's VHS video, could even sit and view it. And what was that first process? Sounds kind of arduous. Yeah, it's interesting because Much Music was a channel where it was live. If you didn't catch it right then, you would never be able to see it <laughs> ever again. Yes. But what would happen is a lot of people would 
like you mentioned, would record on a VHS tape. And then, you know, years later, obviously YouTube kind of negates the real purpose of much music in a sense of, of watching those music videos. But it was that very medium where so many people uploaded these old VHSs that they held onto. And then really predominantly during the pandemic, I think people just had a lot of time on their hands and found these old boxes of tapes and started uploading them. And that was a great starting point for the archives to be able to work with that as placeholders and then ultimately getting full access to the archives and being able to use the original beta tapes and and be able to put them on there was great. Oh my God. When you finally got permission to go into the archives, as it were, that must have been thrilling. Did you feel like a kid in a candy store when you finally arrived? Yeah. The archivists at 299 Queen Street West, in my opinion... They're in the basement of that building, but they have the most important job out of anyone because they're preserving this incredible part of Canadian history. So being able to meet them, being able to be in this shrine, it it has this magic that can't really be explained (laughs) that all of this history is in this one spot and being able to point to things. And a lot of things haven't even been digitized. It's the old library cards trying to find things. So, I mean, it was thrilling. I mean, that's really when making documentaries that's the thing that excites me the most is being able to you know access a treasure trove and that mm. was the in my opinion the best that had been unearthed and unaccessed in our country so isn't that incredible before this interview erica called you a visionary and you i can really see that from doing the research that you are sort of a visionary documentary filmmaker and it kind of reminded me of moses nimer who was a visionary in the worlds of television and media. And I also sense that you are the ultimate perfectionist and you drive yourself very intensely. And I think you just take the work that you do incredibly seriously. And I'm not suggesting that other filmmakers don't, but I really feel that from you. Beyond conscientious, saying things like, I can't mess this up, which is what you said back in the Carter effect. What do you think drives you so relentlessly? The pursuit to master a craft, knowing that, You can't. One can never. It's very subjective, but I enjoy that pursuit. I love that you mentioned Moses. Moses was a guy that I actually only knew from a street name on the corner at Queen. I I knew nothing about him, but it was incredible to be able to go through that footage and to see someone that not only was embracing the city of Toronto, I mean, he could have easily taken a job and gone to Los Angeles, which you see a lot of people in this country do, and there's no knock on them, but he was really proud of Canada, where he was from, the city in particular. And he was so ahead of his time. I mean, the entire building, he's truly the architect. I mean, he's not the credited architect technically, but coming (laughs) up with that idea of removing the barrier of the television studio, embracing that, bringing up the windows, hiring such a diverse group that represented the city. I mean, if you look at modern television now, a lot of people are emulating what Moses envisioned. I mean, he's the true visionary title makes me very uncomfortable as a director, but it was really cool to be able to learn about him. And what really excites me is that there's a whole younger generation that doesn't know about him. They might know about much music, but be able to kind of put a face and a name to that and preserve that history is very, I'm honored to do so, you know. What was it like to sit down with Moses Neimer? I know we're not allowed to know anything about the film, but I was just wondering if you were able to sit down with Moses. I actually never sat down to interview him. My original intention was to interview him. My original intention was to have him end the film in his TV museum, explaining on (laughs) camera his vision. 
for making this type of uh, network. But as I got farther along into the edit, the story started to take shape and I found an ending that was more fitting in a sense, or just different, more reflecting where we are today in music and less about the building or much music. I think as I was touching on earlier, hearing these artists on the air, that's really representing the much music effect in many ways. Um, so I never, never got to sit down with him. We did trade some emails back and forth and he was very appreciative of the film, which getting to know who he is, it was, it was huge. I mean, you can't get any better than a, a pat on the back from Moses Zimmer. So that was really cool. That's really awesome. Okay. Let's go back there, Erica. And I'm just wondering, what has this been like for you just to be reliving this in this very cool way? Maybe a way you never could have imagined. Mixed. I have mixed feelings because I don't want to live in the past. And I tried to run away from much music for years after I was on air because it so stamped me as that girl from much music that it colored everything that I did afterwards. And I'm more than just that girl on much music, but much music was so powerful that it really connects me Still to this day, when I walk into a room, inevitably someone will go, you're that girl. (laughs) Thankfully, they still call me a girl. Um, But uh, yeah, it also is exciting for me because I want my kids to see this movie. There is no much music anymore. And they can't really understand what it was that I did. Now, they know that their mom was sort of famous because when we would go out together, people would inevitably stop me or my kids and say, do you know who your mom is? (laughs) And they'd kind of roll their eyes and go, yeah. But so they knew that I was in the public eye, but they didn't really, they can't really understand the power of much music or what I looked like back in the day. Oh, here's a crazy thing. My son just turned 23 and that was how old I was when I started on much music. So Sean, when we're in Vancouver and I'm sitting with my son, Josh. It's going to be amazing. And I was 20 when I started working at City. And when I'm sitting in Halifax with my daughter, watching the premiere in Halifax. Wow. It's going to mean so much to me. So really what, you know, I understand that this is having a huge impact on all kinds of people. But the reason why I wanted to do it was very selfish. It was because I wanted to show my kids who their mom is. Wow. You know what? Also, I just want to tell the listeners, because we don't realize this is pre-TikTok. This is pre-social media. This is like, it's kind of crazy. But like, if you wanted to see these artists, these music stars, you had to be there. You had to go there. You had to make a written request or a, you know, or a phone request or actually show up in person and be, you know, one of the throngs in the crowd outside, you know, 299 Queen Street West. It wasn't like this easy thing, like just go to YouTube and look at it. So this is like for you, even like your memories, like you don't have tapes of all of this and recordings of all this. This was living in the moment. And I think that, Sean, you've captured this by splicing together the archival footage with the VOs, the voiceovers of all the VJs which is really cool. In other words, you're not breaking down the fourth Brechtian wall by having them do talking head interviews. Was that a conscious decision? Because that's pretty brilliant in itself. Yeah, it was. I wanted to find a way to bring an audience that had either experienced much music before or hadn't got a chance to watch it. I wanted to find a way to recreate what it was like to sitting down 
And I found if you went into modern day, the talking head style and then bringing back that, that time travel, it's not as effective. So the entire film is there to transport you into having that much music experience. So, and, and that experience was very much, I mean, you touched on all of those things. You never really knew what was going to come next. And there was a magic to it. It wasn't, yes. the artists weren't as accessible as they are now. And then therefore it created a more special feeling when you actually got to see or hear them. Even though you know it so intimately, did you find yourself really getting excited as you were editing this film and seeing it all come together as if you were living in the moment? Don't answer that just yet. We're going to go on a short commercial break. We'll find out what it was like for Sean Menard to see the film 299 Queen Street West come to life when we come back, back in a moment. Finding Your Bliss is brought to you by Create, Canada's leading fertility centre for over 25 years. Create is here for anyone struggling with infertility or in need of assisted reproductive technology to have children. Create is about cutting-edge science from highly skilled doctors. In unprecedented times like these, Create is about ensuring the safety of all patients and staff. Create has made important changes to protect you by ensuring social distancing, wearing masks, as well as screening before entering. So what about the bundle of joy that you've been hoping would come into your family? Create Fertility Center is here for you. Visit createivf.com to keep up with the latest changes and learn about Create Fertility Center's comprehensive care for every fertility journey. Keep safe and healthy during these challenging days, remembering that life is about moments that we create together. We're back, and this is Finding Your Bliss on Zoomer Radio, AM 740, FM 96.7. And I'm here with Sean Menard and the iconic Much Music BJ, Erica M. And I was just asking you before the break, Sean, if you found yourself getting excited as you were editing the film and seeing it all come to life as if you were living in the moment. Of course, Judy. I mean, that it was a real treat to, to work on this film and being able to find different things and then make the difficult choice of what artists are we going to feature. But it, it kind of, I, I focused on ones that were transcendent of the generation, ones that are still relevant today with an incredible catalog. But I also tried to highlight the VJ skills in being able to reveal them as regular human beings, yes. having them talk about the art of being creative, of being thoughtful with what you make. I just found that artists back then it's probably not answering your question, but I found that artists back then were putting out and producing full albums after years of touring and years of playing when no one knew who they were. And it seemed like there was a lot more intention with what they were creating. Whereas now it's a little bit, I mean, artists are putting out singles where it becomes a hit on TikTok and they don't even really right. know who they are yet. They haven't really reached that point of understanding who they are as an artist. So I really tried to highlight that and hope that future artists can be inspired by this way of thinking. I was amazed at the stars, the Justin Bieber's and the, and the, and the Stones and, and the Red Hot Chili Peppers, like all the bands that came in, into that space. And yet at the same time, there was this such a cool juxtaposition because you guys are becoming stars. I always remember, Erica, the story you told me about how you were walking on Queen Street on your lunch hour one day and you heard psh, 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 whispering, whispering. And you were like, what is this? And tell us what it was. I was with my girlfriend, Wendy, and my girlfriend, Jackie. We were walking down Queen Street. And I kept on hearing, like you said, and I was like, what's going on? And everyone, it was, that's Erica M. I didn't hear it. My girlfriends heard it. 
So cool. And they got used to it, but I never hear it. I'm semi-oblivious to all of this, this kind of thing. <laughs> Judy, I have to tell you something kind of funny, which Sean didn't mention, which is Sean had no clue who I was. When he asked because me to he be... he was born in 84, right? You were right. born in 84 when it started. Yeah. So he didn't know who Erica M was. <laughs> yes, yes. And so when he called me, I don't think he really, he didn't care. If, you know what I mean? Like he, it wasn't like he was talking to someone who he, he had grown up watching and it was right. really important. Right. He knew the name because someone, I think he researched it or something, but he had no idea in quotation marks who I was. That's and so cool. then we went out for drinks and, and he admitted as much to me. <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, well, you're probably getting more than you bargained for. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you're making this film, right? Mm. So that anyone like Sean in your generation can enjoy this because this is like the music of our generation. This is like huge stuff. I have to ask you, much music introduced a generation of Torontonians to the music video. We forget about that as well. And I can't believe the stars that came through the studio. Sean, can you speak to how much music really made these Canadian singers and musicians into huge stars due to its format and the whole trajectory? And for kids growing up in the 80s, these and 90s, and I know it went on till the 2000s, but these were the best years of your lives. And I remember this. These were the formative most unbelievable years with much music providing the soundtrack, driving the fashions and styles and the cultural references that everyone knows today. And there was something about the excitement and aliveness of it all that I understand you captured in this film. How were you able to do that to achieve that? I can't wait to see it. Yeah, I don't, I mean, it's all a blur on how I was able to achieve it and accomplish it. But I mean, the footage really speaks for itself. And much music, you're right. I mean, they were a star making machine, uh, 30%, I believe of the video content had to be considered Canadian content. So you had a lot of homegrown talent that maybe wouldn't have got their shot in any other opportunity or time or place. And it really, you know, gave people a a bar to achieve that was realistic. Hey, I can get, Mm -hmm. we can go from our garage here in name the town in Ontario or (laughs) anywhere across the country and we can be on much music. Wow. And then, then they would feel that effect by touring and selling out arenas and having that experience. So yeah, that was, that was really cool to be able to see how they were able to turn into such a star making machine and you kind of forget about it or take it for granted if you've experienced it. But that's where the film really wants to, you know, highlight that fact. And And behind the scenes, Judy, what's interesting is that there were, I don't know, seven or eight people on the music committee. How many people, Sean? Do you, did you, do you remember that? Seven or eight people? And they're like a bunch of schmoes from our office. Like, you know, like they're, (laughs) it's not like, you know, you graduated from a degree with a degree in musicology or something. They're just like kids who graduated from Centennial College and they're not, they weren't, you know, the elite of the music industry. They're just regular people who were on the, production team at Much Music and they would meet every week. They'd go into this the boardroom with a stack of new videos that the record companies bring with along with gifts so that they would play the music. <laughs> and then they would decide which ones go into heavy me- rotation, light or uh, medium. And wow. they were the star makers, these regular people. <laughs> and they, they wow. made or broke careers. Yes, And I believe yes. that was also part of, you know, Moses's genius on his hiring process is he brought in 
young talent that didn't have the experience, but they had the passion. And he always felt that in talking to some of the VJs, they felt that, well, you can learn the technical aspects to being on live television, but you can't learn passion. That can't be recreated or eventually um, discovered. So you come with that and then you're going to have a, of the freedom to play whatever you want. And that was what made much mm-hmm. music so special, in my opinion, was today everything is so data-driven. We want to know what, you know, this is popular, so we're going to play a lot of this, or this is what people want to see. Sometimes people don't know what they want to mm-hmm. see or hear. Sometimes they need an exactly. individual to show them something that's interesting, that's not an algorithm on your Spotify or, or you know, yes. or Apple or wherever. So I thought there was a lot of beauty to that if just operating from a place of instinct and what we think is cool and a lot of magic came from that. And and that's so interesting. And you, Eric, initially you self-curated your own time, right? You were like, this is the music I want to listen to. And people followed like the Pied Piper, right? And, And I've even heard you guys say in interviews that it's almost like the audience used to be outside, the stars were inside with you guys. And then 20 years later, the crowd started to infiltrate into the building and there was an arc that I think shifted because when the audience started saying, we want to hear this and they started to curate the music, it didn't work as well. So it was actually better when you were doing what you were doing. Can you say more about that? Well, I think that the reason why each of us were hired is because we had very strong points of view about music and art and culture. And so you had this tapestry of voices who brought in their unique tastes to the music programming on a day-to-day basis. So Mm -hmm. to be clear, I didn't pick all the music in my shows every day. The way it worked is they were pre-programmed to have the heavy, medium, and light rotation songs that were chosen by the crew. And then there was a bunch of optional spaces left for the VJs. And so the producers, young producers, who were all around my age at the time, they would program the shows for each of us and they got to know our styles. And so that each show did reflect each of our musical tastes because Michael Williams' musical taste and Master T had very different taste than me. And Christopher Ward had different musical tastes than me and Michael. And so people would tune in to watch the people whose musical tastes they most enjoyed. But they would also watch other people as well and they would discover new music So in a way, I was, and most of the on-air people were the original influencers. Like we actually were influential. Wow. Wow. When you started off, J.D. Roberts introduced you and you were starstruck. (laughs) You just didn't know what to do. And you found yourself after a few moments. And then, as you said, you couldn't stop talking. But from there, 10 years later, you did the interview that went viral. It went viral, I think, 20 years later, but it was the interview of all interviews. And that was Kurt Cobain. And I was so impressed with how gutsy you were because it's true. Everyone asks the same questions. Tell me about your album. What's the latest song? What's the latest track? And you went right for the, what's your favorite book that you've read lately that has stuck with you? And of course, he talked about Perfume, the book he read 10 times. Can you just tell us more about that? Like, was your heart racing or were you kind of chill about the whole thing? So this is one of my favorite stories, but we're going to hear the answer to the story right after this short commercial break. We'll be right back with Erica M. and filmmaker Sean Menard. Back in a moment. Finding Your Bliss is brought to you by Create, Canada's leading fertility center for over 25 years. Create is here for anyone struggling with infertility or in need of assisted reproductive technology to have children. 
Create is about cutting-edge science from highly skilled doctors. In unprecedented times like these, Create is about ensuring the safety of all patients and staff. Create has made important changes to protect you by ensuring social distancing, wearing masks, as well as screening before entering. So what about the bundle of joy that you've been hoping would come into your family? Create Fertility Center is here for you. Visit createivf.com to keep up with the latest changes and learn about Create Fertility Center's comprehensive care for every fertility journey. Keep safe and healthy during these challenging days, remembering that life is about moments that we create together. We're back, and this is Finding Your Bliss on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. And just before the break, I was asking you, Erica, if your heart was racing before you interviewed Kurt Cobain. Well, I wasn't a huge fan of Nirvana, so my heart wasn't racing for the reasons you might think. My heart was racing because when any of us were sent out on a junket, so which means at an interview outside of the city that's being paid for partly by the record company, where you know there's going to be about 30 other journalists waiting in other hotel rooms. And these (laughs) stars are shepherded from room to room and you're given like a half an hour with each artist. You know that your interview has a very good chance of being terrible because these artists are on autopilot. So I was thinking I need to do something. So when he walks into the room, he will see me as not someone, a faceless person in the media, but a peer yes. and someone with personality and a brain. Yes. Because he didn't like traditional media. So when he walked into the room, I said, hi, my name's Erica. Do you want to do the interview in the bed or on, or the, on the balcony? balcony? Yeah. And it kind of threw him and he, he looked sort of discombobulated <laughs> and he went on the balcony. And we went, okay, great, let's do it. We set up and we shot it there really quickly because we just do it handheld um, on the cameraman's shoulder. And I had him there. He initially saw me as a person because he thought I was kind of weird, but I I was okay with that because he's kind of weird. And that's what I wanted. I didn't want to be mainstream straight media. And then I started asking him odd questions right from the get-go again. Mm -hmm. So he would go, wait, what's going on here? This is kind (laughs) of interesting. And it worked. And he talked to me like a human being. And I think that's what really came through is I looked him in the eye and uh, we had a conversation, not an interview. And he seemed sweet and he seemed guileless in that interview, which was not the image he had projected. It was really incredible. What did you think, Sean, when you first saw that Kurt Cobain interview? I know part of it's in the film, evidently. What did you think when you first saw that? Yeah, everything you touched on, it was a side of Kurt Cobain that I had never seen before. And mm-hmm. so many Nirvana enthusiasts and fan base of all cited across the board that that's the best interview ever recorded on tape, ever recorded, period. So it was, it was definitely a, a high point. And I found it was interesting because from a narrative standpoint, that was right around the time that Erica had left. She'd been on the air for 10 years, to, you know, from a receptionist <laughs> answering the phones <laughs> with no experience to interviewing the biggest rock star at his peak and, and doing that. So in my opinion is I don't really know what she, what else she had left to prove or could accomplish mm-hmm. in that medium. Mm-hmm. So it was, um, it was cool from a, a storytelling standpoint of it was an, an easy transition of, of how do you go from, you know, Erica's story and journey onto the next generation. And so it was, it was nice. I was able to use such a, 
famous uh, piece of, of his music history to do that. And similarly, you, there was a weird thing that happened, right? It, the whole thing was shot from his vantage point. There was no two shot. I think they had shot it, but they didn't use it. And oh, so no, you no. look they, like this no, mysterious. No, 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 no. Oh. Oh, okay. It was shot. So he was done the typical way. Because when you go on out in a, on a field shoot, much music is super cheap. So we would only use one <laughs> camera. And right. the way it works is the cameraman does not film the interviewer. It's shot over the interview shoulder. So if you look at the, you'll see my frizzy hair, the same frizzy hair <laughs> in the shot. And then what happens is, depending on how important the star is, sometimes they sit for it. Other times they leave. So in this case, Kurt Cobain would have left. And I have to fake what's called a re-ask. So I ask the questions in, in a more professional way. And yes. then the editors glue it together, like for the new music show, where I ask my professional question and he gives his fantastic answer. But someone stole the raw tape without me in it. And that's oh what goodness, was played God. on YouTube. And that's wow. what went viral. And I was, God damn it. That's my <laughs> interview. And I wasn't even seen in it. But we know your voice. And I think it added to the allure of this mysterious BJ doing this, right? I've held yeah. that. I've held that tape, by the way. That tape exists in the archives. I've, that's, that's how so we're cool. able to see you because that was the only shot that. So, I mean, it's, it is on that, on the physical original Betacamp tape, which is really cool. Sean, please, can you do an edit of it <laughs> with me in there? And then we could upload it to YouTube and go, this is yes. what you were supposed to see. Yes, I'll even play it on my on our <laughs> social media if you do that. Yes, that would be so cool. Sean, did you have a sense that this was going to be huge, that you had your fingertips on the pulse of something pretty sensational pretty early on in the process? Like, what was that moment where you went, okay, this is good? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't think I would have put up my house if I didn't feel that there was going to be a big audience and a big buzz. Did I think that it would make its world premiere at one of the biggest film festivals in America? No. I, wow. I didn't. That, that, in the U.S. Yeah. In the U.S. Like what? And I think uh. what was interesting about that was they had no real knowledge of much music. They had obviously grown up with MTV. But I think that's what really speaks to how original everything was up here and how they had these great artists that they were familiar with watching, but it was always recorded on tape with a VJ that was very different. You know, MTV was building their VJs to be bigger or just as big as the artists. It's very different mm -hmm. up in Canada. So mm. yeah, I knew I knew it was going to be big of the biggest stars in music. Uh, and that was part of my frustration over six years. Of why why doesn't anyone see what I see? Why doesn't anyone realize how big a deal this is? So uh, Well, Sean, Canadians don't support Canadians. We know that. That's a problem that I've faced my whole life. Just trying to get things going, even as an entrepreneur. Canadians mm -hmm. are timid and mm -hmm. you're not. Yes. Thank you. That's so true. Sean, you've said this is bigger than much music to me. This is about preserving and telling the story of Canadian music history in a way that has never been told. Can you elaborate on what you meant? Because I think that's a really important part of all this. Yeah, I mean, that's my quote. That, wow, I was in a good headspace. That's your quote. Yeah, when I was writing that. I, I mean, it just really was something that, I, I mean, I kind of touched on it before with it. I hate coming back to calling it the much music effect, but it really was. I enjoy telling stories of how did we get here. And when you look at what much music was able to do by building these artists, I mean, Eric, how would you, how would you answer that question? Well, I guess what I would say is when 
5440 plays live to this day. Whenever they start the song Baby Ran, they tell the story about me and much music and how we launched their career. So I think all the Canadian bands really have a soft spot for much music, many of which would never have had the kind of success that they're having. It's it, not a reflection of their talent. The talent was always there. Mm-hmm. It's that there weren't, there wasn't ever a platform or a venue or a team of people who had so much influence in order yes. to shape their career. And I think that's, this movie really captures that story of how this little idea that Moses had such a huge effect on Canadian culture. I think it's more than music, by the way, Sean. I think it's culture in general, because for the first time ever, kids in PEI were hearing the same music as kids in Kelowna and kids Mm -hmm. in Regina. There was this beautiful unity that much music had. And I think the last time that I witnessed that was when Gord Downey died and the entire country grieved. And I felt that was the much music effect. Wow. 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 The premiere and the national tour of this film are almost like a rock show, like the Taylor Swift Eras tour, (laughs) (laughs) a music tour of a band. Was that a conscious decision? And what can people expect when they come out to see the screening of the documentary and the intimate and interactive Much Music experience with the Much Music VJs? And we're going to give a list of all the dates at the end of the show. But can you tell us just more about about that? Yeah, I mean, the idea of a traveling rock show was definitely... You know, the early Much Music Video Awards were actually done on a, on a train and they would go from city wow. to city and bands <laughs> would be picked up by the train and they'd go to the next city. So that was a part that I could never highlight. I just ran out of runtime in the film, but it always stuck with me. And although we're not on a train, um, but we're definitely moving around the country. And for me, I wanted to create something beyond just this goes on a streaming platform and you watch it at home. I think... The idea of journeying out. I mean, if you watched much music back in the day, they would proudly announce 299, come on down. We're going to have this artist. And, you know, you get to go there with your friends and you have a shared experience. So I hope people that, you know, lived and watched it can head out with a lot of their friends. But I, I truly hope that there's a generation that grew up with it that are now parents that can bring their kids, just like Erica is going to be in Vancouver with her son and Halifax with her daughter and really show them these artists that I see these kids all rocking these Nirvana shirts and the Ramones and, uh, you know, name the artists that are still so relevant. So maybe we could, you know, get them out to the show and have that, that shared experience that I think a lot of us got away from during the pandemic. What can people expect on September 22nd, Friday night, 8 p.m. at Roy Thompson Hall for the red carpet premiere? Any little sneak peek, anything exciting? That you yeah, share I mean, with us? you mentioned those, uh, these Canadian artists. I mean, I'm actually surprised at the amount of the either members of the bands or the management that have reached out to me that want to attend on the red carpet, which is, which is incredible. And I think that speaks to them. They just want a night where they can say thank you for being a part of this history and helping their career. And then of course, right now I have nine confirmed VJs, uh, from the film. So, nice. uh, basically all, all of them will be there and it goes beyond just the screening, right? We're going to be able to have the, you know, the intimate interactive with the, uh, flipping on its, on its head this time where the VJs are the ones being asked the questions from the crowd, <laughs> from musicians, from, from everyone. So it will be, uh, an incredible three hour event that a lot of people are going to walk away from and 
feeling great that this nostalgic piece of history is, uh, you know, is coming back. And I love it. It's all Canadians. It's our story. It's mm -hmm. not American. It's not, you Mm -hmm. know, those other people who try and take over our culture. It's made by Canadians for Canadians to celebrate what we grew up with together. So awesome. I I love that when I asked your promotional person, can I just get a little sneak peek, a little clip of the film in addition? He said, no, (laughs) no one's getting it. No one has seen it. Eric is one of the only people. I know Rick Campanelli because he was out in March at the film festival, but you've seen it. And you've said stuff about this that people, just tell us what can people expect other than nostalgia and just this incredible blast from the past being immersed in it. What can people expect? You want me to answer? Yes, yes. Oh, oh. well, I didn't want it to end. Wow. I mean, it was, I wanted to see more. He didn't go deep enough, but how, I mean, it's two hours long. He wow. had to, th- there was just sort of, there was such an abundance of stories and video for him to pull from. Imagine trying to compress, you know, 15 years. Really? Is wow. it 15 or 20 years that you sort of, when Justin Bieber was on, is that 20 years after? Yeah, I mean, we're look 25, close to 30 because there was a lot of new music, city TV stuff as well. Right. So about 30 years. So, and he's, he's compressed that into just two hours. So it was very emotional for me to watch. And I know that people are going to latch on to different parts. Certain things will really resonate with them. Uh, some people may love the early beginnings of it. So you, you learn actually how much music initially came to be with like the politics and the, you know, the technology, etc. Mm-hmm. Some people will like the bits about Justin Bieber and how he was part of much music <laughs> at one point. Like there's so many moments that well, people will go, oh, I didn't know that. I think that no matter what age you are, and by the way, I'm taking my dad in Montreal, no matter That's what great. age you are, there will be many moments that will really hit your heart, I think. Well, one of the coolest parts about September 22nd and the premiere at Roy Thompson is that aside from Erica and aside from Rick, who came to the world premiere in the US, the rest of the VJs haven't seen the film. So their reactions afterward is going to be so fresh. And I, I think that there's going to be a great energy to that. So excited about this. This is part of a trilogy. So the Carter Effect was one, 299 Queen Street West is two amazing films about Toronto documentaries. There's a third one. I know you're not going to tell me, but can we have a little bit of a sneak? No. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> we, I have, I have, an, I have an idea. <laughs> I just know that I thought after Carter Effect, it would be a lot easier to do a Canadian story, but it, it's difficult every time. So I'm sure it might end up taking me another five or six years, but it's something that I definitely want to complete the, uh, the trilogy of these great stories that took place in this Toronto area and had such an impact around the world. So awesome. There's something about the film without even having seen it that really tugs at your heartstrings. So for anyone in our generation who knows much music, there's just a nostalgia, a wow factor, a starry-eyed something that makes you emotional before the lights even go down. So I just can't wait for all of this to unfold. There's a question we ask every guest at the end of the show, and I'm going to ask you, what is bliss for Sean Menard? To be honest with you, it's it's and this might sound like a shameless promoter here, but it's sitting in a crowd, <laughs> being able to watch your finished product. I mean, you're always thinking of them when I'm making the film. So to have that moment, which will be, you know, definitely on, on September 22nd, be able to sit there in the crowd 
with the stars of the film, the cast, uh, be able to, you know, peek over and see how their reactions are on certain things. I mean, to me, that will bring me bliss is being able to complete something and bring it to the people it was made for, which was uh, the Canadian audiences. That's awesome. Thank you. Eric, I've asked you many times, what is bliss these days for Erica M? What will be bliss is watching this show with my family. Absolutely. Uh, For them to see a part of me that they, with my kids, never really could understand. They will see it. And my dad, well, just make him proud. So, uh, yeah. Thank you, Sean. So fantastic. Well, I got to congratulate you in advance. I can't wait. I really am chomping at the bit and I know I'm one of many who feels that way. What is the best way, Sean, for people to get more information about the film, to contact you, connect with you on social media and get tickets? Yeah, 299queenstreetwest.com is all the ticket information on there. Awesome. And Erica, what's the best way to connect with you on social media and beyond? Oh, you can find me anywhere. I have a website, ericam.com. You could find me on LinkedIn or Instagram. Those are the best places. Awesome. I want to thank you so much, Erica M. and Sean Menard, for being on the show today. It's kind of been thrilling to have you both here. And I can't wait for September 22nd. Thank you so much. It's been an honor. Thanks, Judy. Thank you, Judy. Before we go today, I want to let you know that now is a great time to get tickets for the Toronto premiere of the film 299 Queen Street West, which is having a red carpet event gala next week on Friday, September 22nd at 8 p.m. To get your tickets, all you have to do is go to 299queenstreetwest.com. And if you aren't in the Toronto area, you're still in luck. The film will be touring all across Canada. As just mentioned, the Much Music Experience Tour begins in Toronto on September 22nd. Then it goes to Montreal on October 17th, over to St. John, New Brunswick on October 18th, followed by Charlottetown PEI on October 24th, over to Halifax on October 25th, then to Ottawa on October 28th, Calgary on November 1st, back to Hamilton, Ontario on November 4th, then over to Edmonton on November 8th, Regina on November 13th, then to Vancouver, BC on November 24th, Victoria on November 25th, and the final stop is in Winnipeg, Manitoba on November 27th. Tickets are available by going online to 299queenstreetwest.com for this documentary screening, followed by an intimate and interactive conversation with the Much Music BJs. I'd love to thank our wonderful guests, Sean Menard and Eric M. for being on the show today. Also, thank you to Mag Ruffman, Siobhan Kylie, producer Olivia Weatherall, audio engineer Juliana Yanitz-Yellow, senior editor Lauren Kaminsky, video editor Sierra Brown-Rodriguez, audio producer Faz Kazi and everyone here at Zoomer. And of course, a big thank you to our sponsor, the Create Fertility Center. Music is such a blissful thing. There's nothing like music to relive the soul and uplift it. For everyone here, I'm Judy Liebrach, reminding you all to check out the music of our generation in the exciting new film, 299 Queen Street West, and take one step closer to finding your bliss. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.